Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 205 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Will Smith. State Senator from District 20 in Montgomery County, Maryland, a Democrat first in this, uh, appointed to the State Senate in 2016, currently sitting on the Judicial Proceedings Committee. He's a former delegate elected into the District 20 seat in 2015. He was sworn into office. He's a civil rights attorney. Senator Smith is a U.S. Naval Reserve officer since 2009 and is the former director of the Homeland Security Advisory Council at the United States Department of Homeland Security from 2011 to 2013. Senator Smith, thank you so much for joining us here today. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. This is great. Excellent. I'm glad to be here with you. So the first question I'd like to pose to you, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Sure. I think, well, it, it all goes back to, um, I think, growing up in the area in Montgomery County, uh, you're so close to Washington, D.C. So as a young person, you're exposed to policy and the importance of getting involved in civics from a very early age. And so, Did you get involved in civics in an early age? I did. You know, not only, so it all started at the local, the most fundamental grassroots level was student government and doing community service projects. Uh, but then getting into involved in the Young Democrats and then other stuff with community service and uh, that eventually led me into AmeriCorps, led me into the U.S. Navy, led me to serve in Barack Obama's administration, and led me to run for office, led me to become an attorney, but for a civil rights attorney, and advocating for the interest of folks that are underrepresented. So, um, you know, I've always tried to operate under that adage that Ben Franklin, you can always do well by doing good. And I think that's true of a lot of the stuff that we can do in America, whether it's through law whether it's through policy and politics, whether it's through opening a nonprofit, there are plenty of ways to give back to your community. So I've tried to do that through almost every phase of my career, um, uh, professionally and otherwise, but also just in my general philosophy of life. So, What first attracted yeah. you to this volunteerism? Why were you interested in doing AmeriCorps? Why were you interested in volunteering in high school aside from the community service requirement to graduate? Frankly, it was an example of my parents and in particular my mother um, look, you know, I'm the first person in my family to graduate from college, first person to have the opportunity to go. Uh, my parents were both, my mother grew up in Washington, D.C., um, and my father grew up in, in Pittsburgh and then also Washington, D.C. Their example, really the sacrifice they made to give that next generation, to give me opportunities they never saw, is something that opened my eyes at a very early age. Look, they were, my parents were born in, I'm 20 years younger than my closest siblings. So my parents were born in the 30s. How many siblings do you have? I have, so I had two brothers and one sister. One brother passed away, but they're in their Sorry 50s. To hear that. Uh, yeah, thanks. So you, and, and just for our listeners who sure. aren't familiar with you, how old are you? I'm 35. So you're 35 years old, and your siblings are in their 50s, and your parents are in their 80s. Well, so my, my father passed away, uh-huh. um, but my mother is in her 70s. Okay. Yeah. So they so okay. So you came in late in life, and you were saying that you had the model from your all of your older siblings. None of them went to college. So I my both my parents were had relationships beforehand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my brother two brothers didn't you know didn't graduate from college or go to college my sister who i just met at my dad's really i met her or met her a couple times but we really developed a relationship at my father's funeral 
Uh, my father passed away on my first day of law school, if you can believe that or not. But she is someone that was never exposed to and didn't even know. She's a half sibling. Um, and so we got to get to, to know each other. She is, she lives in New York City and she went to Vassar. Uh, actually, she went, so she's a Vassar, a great Vassar grad. For our um, listeners, uh, your host, me, I went to Vassar as well. So that's what Will's that's right. to. That's exactly right. <laughs> so she's, she's, you know, a brilliant mind and obviously, and then she went to law school in New York City. Um, and I honestly started developing a relationship with her and her daughter in just in 2006 when my father passed away. I didn't even know um, much about her. I knew of her, but didn't know much about her. So this has been a, it's a great opportunity. You know, my father's death really brought some of the family together. Wow. So a lot of personal uh, narrative, a lot of yeah. personal, I guess, uh, struggles that you've had to deal with, a lot of loss uh, on a personal level. How has that affected your political career? Because... Whether our listeners, listeners, you, you listen to this episode, I know you've listened to many episodes with many politicians, but what you really don't get if you haven't run for office is what it's like to run a full-fledged campaign. And I'm not talking about being a volunteer two Sundays a year. I'm not talking about being even a campaign manager or the wife or the husband of a candidate. To be the candidate himself has an enormous emotional toll. When you add on to that the toll of, of, of loss... Yeah. of deaths in the family. What is that like? How are you able to sustain yourself on the campaign trail with all this ex external emotional turmoil in your life? Well, I think a part of it is that, you know, though uh, you know, many members of my family, you know, were not equipped with the opportunities that I, were, that I was, um, they opened those doors for me. So, for instance, I, you know, I look, I have, you know, relatively speaking, I have not lived, <laughs> not lived a difficult life. Uh, um, I've had every opportunity afforded to me. Uh, I went to great schools all the way through. Um, I've had great opportunities, but because of the sacrifice that my parents made, my dad, look, my dad was a cab driver, uh, and then later he drove limousines. Uh, was never good at money and struggled with alcoholism. My mother it was a government employee, started at GS nothing, and then finally retired after 35 years out of GS 15, if you can believe it, all without a college degree. And uh, for our listeners who yeah. aren't familiar with the GS level because they're not from Washington, what's the bottom, what's the top? You know, I think GS starts at almost like a GS 1 or 3, and then it'll go up to a scale of 15. Uh, so she went from the bottom to the to, top. To the top. And GS is government service. Government service, exactly right. And so, you know, so she worked her way up literally from the bottom of the pay scale to the top. And it's working for GSA, General Services Administration. Did that inspire and you or have any impact? That's amazing. Life? I mean, not only did it inspire me um, as this, you know, African American woman from Washington, D.C., you know, McKinley Tech graduate who dropped out because she got pregnant at 16 or 15, rather, with my brother and then ended up coming back, graduating, getting herself into the government, getting herself the, you know, the qualifications she needed, and then going forward. Um, by the time I'd come around, frankly speaking, I was, you know, I was born on third base. I was rounding third compared to where she started. And it was it's just an amazing. So, look, the example is something I, I never want to like, kind of like portray or like portray that I've struggled. Um, but I, I understand that my family struggled and the opportunity that I've had was born out of that struggle. So, and I'm sure you yeah. commiserate with many constituents in your district who are in a similar situation yeah. to your mother. Have you ever encountered a constituent who, who's, who's had a story that's analogous to the difficulties your mother encountered? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the best, you know, she's actually become a dear friend of mine and was very supportive of all my campaigns, but, 
you know, there's a woman in Tacoma Park. She's got um, you know three children. She's going through a divorce. She um, has one that's um, you know a disabled child, struggling to make ends meet, and she wasn't getting enough service hours, requirement hours for her to help assist with her daughter because her daughter requires 24/7 attention. And what that happens is she had to come out of the workforce to take care of her daughter, uh, one of her daughters, um, and so her career was was stunted. And when we were able to help her out with that constituent matter to help the state give some additional hours, she was able to reactivate and re-energize her career, go back on, and, and move forward. Was that kind of activating Medicaid for to provide a, a home health care worker? Well, this is, it's, it's a state benefit program for developmental disabilities and for physical disabilities for families um, that the state subsidizes. And she was only availing herself or only told that she qualified for something like four hours a week. We were able to bump her up. To something like 24 hours. So she was really eligible for more, and she just wasn't aware of it. The government bureaucracy, a lot of times, as a as a, as a lawmaker, as a, as a delegate or a senator, your job is to really just demystify government and cut through the red tape and help people access services. So, what are some of the stories that really exemplify the frustration you felt? What's motivated you? What's tugged the hardest on your heartstrings and has made you? you know, slog through the snow, the rain while canvassing, knocking doors, stay through 15-hour committee hearings. What is it that gets you through that? What are those heart heartstring stories? Well, it's great because you get you get that renewed sense of, of purpose almost every day during session because you hear the testimony of people that have traveled all throughout the state, all from all across the state. Um, they wait in line for hours, sometimes 10 hours, uh, just to give that you there are two minutes of story. And the fact that Marylanders do that every year, um, every day, is, is in, in and of itself inspiring. But the stories that they've come to Annapolis to tell are stories of struggle and triumph, but then also just of people trying to understand why things operate they do with the way they do and trying to change the system. So if there's... Look, it's the most inspiring job I've ever had or could ever hope to have. Um, and it's the most rewarding job. And at the end of the day, they, they, they give you a, che- a check for it. They pay you for it. Um, so it's, I just can't think of anything. Look, you get to help people out. Which for our listeners yeah. is about $43,500 a year. Yeah, so it's not, I mean, it's, look, you know, depend, depending on where you live uh, and where you're, <laughs> where you're living, it's, it, it's a lot or it's not. Um, in Montgomery County, it's probably not. A lot. Uh, so, you, you know, we have a citizen legislature, so most folks have another job outside of uh, the legislature. But Which is where you come in as a civil rights attorney. Correct. Practicing so, law. talk about some of the work that you do outside the legislature. Sure. A lot of the clients that I've represented um, are, are federal employees or people that have been the subject or the victim of discrimination and discriminatory practices in the workplace. And so, we, you know, through the firm I work with and through the firms I've worked with, actually, over the years... Um, had the opportunity to really work and and help people that have been discriminated against because it's not we're not in the Mad Men era anymore. It's much more difficult to prove. Which is a reference to a Netflix uh, film movie in the in the 1950s where racism and sexism was just open and blatant. Mm-hmm. Now things are much more shielded and guarded and more uh, you know uh, beneath the surface and less obvious. And so the, the cases are more difficult, but they're no more agree- less egregious. They're no less egregious now than they were 50 years ago. But just still, less conspicuous. Less conspicuous and less obvious, correct. Uh, and so that's it's been a great it's a great way to make a make a living. Yeah, and you're also in the navy. Correct. Um, I wanted to. 
short, short story of this. Like, you're a jag. No, it was, uh, so I do intelligence. Um, so the the short story is I was a sophomore in college during 9-11, and I wanted to uh, enlist right away. And I told my mother, I said, luck, I'm going. And she's chewed me out. And you're the first one who's gone to college. Yeah, she said, There's, I'm a sophomore at this time. I'm assuming that the Vassar half-sister was from your father, right? That's from my father. Correct. Right. So yeah, this yeah. is your mother's first baby who's going off going to, college. to college. She doesn't want you to drop out. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so she's like, I don't want you dropping out to go off and you're fighting some war. Uh, my uncle's a Vietnam War veteran. He's 100% mentally disabled. She's personally affected by that. Our whole family is. And she sees the you know the results of war at times. So she said, "Look, if you do this, <laughs> I'm not support. You know, I'm not gonna support you. I'm not gonna support this decision. Uh, I want you to finish your education." And I remember having. And we've all had these like you know. You're at a good school. You're William and Mary. Right? William and Mary. Yes, yeah. so it's William and Mary. And you know, you have these late night college bowl sessions with your roommates on your freshman hall. Or you're your like, I just want to go do something. Yeah, enough and, talk. Yeah, yeah, get out dude, there. yeah, exactly right. And then you're talking, and then one of my friends, my best friend from college, said, "Look, look." You are going to do much more good by arming yourself uh, and equipping yourself with a solid education and, under- and gaining some skills and you know gaining some status in society so you can turn around and help uh-huh. uh, than you would if you were to catch a bullet uh, in, in, in the sandbox. And that resonated with me, but I still wanted to do it. Uh, but my mother said she's going to pull the pull the pull the support cord. So I, I went ahead. I graduated. I went to grad school. Did AmeriCorps. I went to you know went through. But in law school, I got a firm job my second to last year, and you know was was probably going to go back to that firm and make a, a living. And so I was finally uh, financially independent. And so I said, look, you know, mom, like, hey, look, I've graduated. I went to grad school at Hopkins. I did admit William Mary. I'm back in law school now. So I'm going to do this. So I did direct commission officer program in the reserves. Um, and so what that is, is it's a, you directly commission as an officer. You go up to Newport, Rhode Island for officer candidate school, and you're in the reserves. So I've been in the reserves since 2009, um, since the, my last year of law school. What does that entail? So it entails basically you, you go, uh, for me, I'm part of a NATO unit now and a DIA unit. So I, I'm overseas for about a, you know, a month every year. Uh, a couple of weeks every year, but it's one weekend a month, and uh, generally two to two weeks to a month every year uh, somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just doing intelligence for NATO, military matters. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So you're you're working on the federal level in that job. Mm-hmm. You're working in the civilian civil rights core of attorneys that populate the nation's, the nation's capital, capital yeah. and, uh, and you're spending three months a year in, uh, in the Senate. So what what sticks out in your mind is what, you know, some of your greatest accomplishments to date? The biggest deal and the biggest uh, accomplishment, honestly, will be last year I got married. You know, so that's a big deal. That's Congratulations. A big, that's a, I mean, it's a big uh, accomplishment to my lovely wife, Camille. Um, she is also an attorney um, and also a native Marylander. And so that's probably the biggest personal accomplishment. But uh, biggest accomplishment legislatively, I think. Um, and that's a big deal yeah, because, yeah. frankly, uh, whether our listeners know this or not, the legislature is rife with politicians whose marriages have dissolved, yeah. whose employment situation has deteriorated. It's very difficult to balance so many different things because, as you mentioned, you are developing 
multiple simultaneous careers. And yeah. when you're throwing everything you can into the one thing, the other thing shrivels. And so the idea is if you're able to really get start a relationship and allow it to blossom while you're still in the political thing, maintaining the legal thing, doing the military thing, and, you know, that's four significant things you got to be That's actually, like, I'm glad you pointed that out, not to get, you know, too personal again, but look, I don't know a single men, member of the legislature that their career outside um, hasn't struggled. I mean, frankly, I mean, it's just, it's a tough deal uh, to do, it, my, myself included. Uh, also, I don't know a single member of the legislature that, you know, their relationships, personal and otherwise, have not been strained because... Um, you're not home to tuck the kids in. You're not home. You're not taking the, your spouse out on a date on Tuesday night. You're in session in a hearing. Yep. And, and you're not, and you're away. And, uh, and then when you're back home... You've got community, you've got work. You've got backlog work from the office. <laughs> you've got you community constituent meet- services, community meetings, meetings. In the evening. Yeah, so it never stops. Um, and so, you know, look, I had two panels tonight, for instance. I mean, I was, uh, today, I mean, I was, you know, I worked all day. I worked Mother's Day night to finish some work that I was behind on until 1.30 in the morning. I had to be in Baltimore this morning at 8 o'clock. And then um, I had two things, you know, in the afternoon, two panels. So... You know, there isn't much time for the personal time, and, it, and so the, your spouse or your significant other, um, it really it's it's a big deal, and it's it's a prerequisite for the for you to have someone that understands um, and is. What was flexible. it like to date? Difficult. Yeah. What'd I mean, you say? Yeah, I just. Well, well, what, what, how would most most women react when you're like, all right, so yeah, nice, fun. Ha, uh, by I'm, the way, I'm here for yeah. You're like, uh, I'm not gonna be here, and sometimes you won't be the top priority. Like, yeah. did people were like, oh, I'll see ya. No, I think if you have the same core values um, and you understand the importance of the work, and you also like, I mean, look, it's an amazing opportunity. Um, this is this is a. You've got, you know, it's an amazing opportunity to be, you know, lucky enough to serve in this capacity. And it is, everyone has got to know, not a, a, a permanent, but a temporary situation that you're in. So I got something that uh, is just kind of burning to get off my chest. Want sure. to throw it on out there. Yeah, I know. So uh, many of our listeners, be forewarned, I'm about to get wonky on you. There you go. But uh, 37.5% of the Montgomery County delegation to the Maryland General Assembly, Montgomery delegation being composed of eight senators and then uh, 24 delegates. So 37.5% of that 32-person delegation have been appointed at some point in their lives to the Maryland House or the Maryland State Senate. You currently have the mayor of Baltimore, Pew, who once was appointed to the House of Delegates. Throughout the state legislature, you have enormous amount of appointments. I mention this specifically because you are one of those individuals mm-hmm. who's been appointed. You originally were elected to the House of Delegates, later appointed to fill a seat that was vacated by now Congressman Jamie Raskin. So the question is, what are your thoughts on the uh, the merits of an appointment process versus an alternative process whereby the legislature is more fully populated by direct election yeah. by the electorate. Well, I think look, you're looking for um, I think that the best the and the most ideal is to have the most democratic process possible. Um, and uh, in 2014, I ran for the House of Delegates and won that election. Um, and so the system that we have now is that when there's a, a, a vacancy in the legislature, the central committee of that respective 
uh, county. And what's the central committee? The central committee is comprised of Democratic activists that are on the ballot and get elected. So there also uh, is a Republican central committee. Correct. So um, just be clear, the person who's leading must be appointed the by the governor of the same, same party. Correct. Right. Exactly. So since Jamie Raskin was a Democrat, uh, the governor, you know, needed to appoint a who is a Republican who's Republican needed to appoint another Democrat. And because District 20 is the most progressive, arguably the most progressive, I think very definitely the most progressive and democratic uh, district in Maryland, uh, there was that's kind of that was kind of like a, a fait accompli. So the uh, the process is that once that opening happens, there you know this year and. I think was a great, great success, and, and, and I'm not talking about the outcome, but the process uh, still needs reform, obviously, critical reform, and I'm, I'm in favor of that, and we'll talk about that in a second. Because your colleague David Moon has introduced legislation, cross file with Senator Brian Feldman. Correct, and I, and I was a co-sponsor of that bill, too. Um, to, we'll talk to, about that. We'll moment. talk about that in a second, yes. But look, this year, the Central Committee held several public uh, fora, like there were lots of public forums. And there were opportunity to vet candidates, to look at their records, to ask them questions, to have them present in public, to see how they performed under pressure. And um, so I think it was the most open process we've seen to date. That being said, though it's not... Um, you only need 13 people to get elected correct. as opposed to a few thousand. Yeah, exactly right. And which has nothing to say about the actual low numbers of voter turnout in the primaries, which effectively determine who gets elected. Correct. I mean, you're getting 4 or 5% of the total electorate correct. selecting who the next delegates will be. No. But that aside, now you're only having 13 people, which is like point, you know, add a whole bunch of zeros. No, I think you're right. No, no, I think you're right. And, and the thing is, the thing to keep in mind is that all those members of the Central Committee are elected in an election. So they run for an election. Not all of them, because half of them have been appointed okay. themselves. Correct. To fill so, vacancies. But it's a, it's a demo. So it's, it's, we have a representative democracy in the United States. And um, so. But do we? We, we don't have. This system? I, I'm, I, yeah. So like, even in Congress, right? We don't. We don't directly, it's not like you, when those members, we have a, a representative democracy. We elect people to do and make decisions for us. There's special elect, elections no, for vacant Correct, correct. Yeah, so, but this process here was, uh, you know, the central committee members are elected under the proviso that, you know, this falls under their portfolio of responsibilities. And should it continue uh, to do so? But for better or worse, it does right now. And this is, this, I'm just describing the process. Now I'll get to the merits of it in a second. But... This is what happens. So it's a representative. You elect these people, these party folks, to represent you at the party level, and those people then make an informed decision based off of several uh, forums that we've had and several applications, constituents writing in, um, endorsements, and so forth. And then they, they you know take a vote. So it's an informed decision that these people have made after being elected or appointed to serve in this capacity. Now... Do I think that we should have special elections to fill these things? Yes. Do I think that it should be a more democratic process? Yes. Um, and do I think there are some logistical hurdles there with respect to cost and all that stuff? Yes, there are. But um, if, if, that's, if, if that's the will of the people to say, look, we are going to have an engaged electorate and have an election process, um, I'm all for it. Now, there's a historical yeah. precedent yeah. in Montgomery County of have appointments of individuals who swear they won't run in the next election. Correct, correct, yeah. So you have Cherie Branson, who was appointed to fill Valerie mm -hmm. Urban's seat in the county council. Yep. And then you had Karen Brito appointed to fill the seat of Delegate Bill Braunrock mm -hmm. when he went, left for federal DOT. Who lives in the same. 
Right, in District 16. Yeah. So the point is that there, when you are appointed, you, you know, 45 of the 50 states in the, in the United States have two-year terms for the lower house. Mm-hmm. But only five states have, uh, obviously Nebraska's unicameral, but only five states have uh, four-year terms for the lower house. So in 45 other states, if someone's appointed after the first year, which some individuals have been, you're looking at uh, one and a half terms in 45 of the states where you haven't even been elected. You face the electorate. You're already an incumbent, have name recognition, have had the benefit of being having earned media, and you're going to get reelected. But if you swore to – if you were appointed and said, look, I'm not going to run for the same seat next time. Maybe I'd be well positioned to run for something else, but not the same seat. And then – uh, at the next regularly scheduled election, which would be at least every two years because of Congress, yeah. then we'll have an elect- a direct election by the by the constituents, um, by the electorate. Would that be something you'd support? No, I, I think I'd support the a, a primary a process that would have a, a special election. I'd support that. But and if a candidate chooses not to run or make a vow or make a pledge not to run again, then fine. How about it? Um, but I do think that there's merit. Look, look, I've served in the House and now I'm serving the Senate as an appointee. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, granted, with the advantages of incumbency, this is District 20. I don't take anything for granted. I've worked to earn the vote of everyone, mm-hmm. uh, you know, every single day. And so I'm going to take my case uh, to the people in 2018 and ask for their vote again, mm-hmm. uh, this time as a senator, not as a delegate. Um, with the understanding that, look, I was appointed and, look, I've had two years to do some work in the Senate. Here is what, uh, you know, I've done. And, you know, judge me on the merits and, and you know, you know, vote up or down based on that. Um, and I do, you know, look, I understand. Look, look, I, I completely understand that there are certain advantages that come with incumbency, a lot of them. Um, and so... The, so, the, the process, the, with respect to the reform, just to answer your question very quickly, I would say that uh, the reform that I'm looking for and the reform that I would support is special elections for these vacancies. Um, if there's a way to especially do it to engage the electorate, and you're talking about low voter turnout for the general election, you know, this is going to be massively low turnout for the uh, special. But if, if, if that brings more people to the fold and it's a more democratic process, I'm all for to it. To replace or to be addended to... To be added to uh, an appointment. No, I'm 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 to in, replace in, an appointment. to replace that appointment process. I mean, look, I definitely special action. Special, I support that. It's a, I mean, um, and wonderful. And, yeah. So I mean, it's, so yeah, moving on, we are approaching the end of this podcast, unfortunately, and we do have to wrap it up. So in so doing, a final two part question. Sure. Will you're 35 years old? Hopefully you know, still in the very early part of your life and career. Yeah. So as you, I'd like to ask you to reflect to our listeners about your time advancing the public interest. I want you to speak to the voters of District 20 about why it has been worthwhile, important, fulfilling, and meaningful to you to, to make so many sacrifices in the name of public service and what you hope the result will be, what your legacy will be, once you've completed all of your public service throughout the course of your career. Sure. 
I think anyone's legacy, anyone that's in public service could, you know, if they're even thinking about a legacy, could just hope that, I mean, it's the basic, you know, premise of anyone's career is that just to leave things a little bit better than when you, when you got there. And so if you can make some incremental progress and you can make some huge changes, but if you leave the system, uh, you know, in a better place than when you got there, I think that's success by any metric. And specifically for me as a lawyer and as someone, as a person of color, um, and as someone that you know has had a, a number of opportunities because of the community that I grew up in in Montgomery County, it's important for me to open up those doors of opportunity for people that maybe didn't have those opportunities. And so, if I'm able to uh, help grow opportunities, especially with respect to immigrants, to the middle class, to people of color, uh, to people that are looking to make a positive change in their lives. Uh, and to you know, make a contribution to our society, no matter their color, their station in life, whatever. I think that's success. Um, and so it, the sacrifice is all worth it because it's it's the best work you're able. You're, I mean, you could ever help for. I mean, you go to work and you get to help people, um, and that's and that's that's it. I mean, that's it doesn't get any more fundamental than that. And so, that has been Will Smith. Senator from District 20 in Montgomery County, Maryland, on the Judicial Proceedings Committee, former delegate, a civil rights attorney, U.S. Naval Reserve officer, formerly with the Department of Homeland Security in the Obama administration, who speaks uh, fundamentally and candidly about the benefits accrued to him by the efforts expended by others and the basic responsibility that is incumbent upon him to perpetuate that service and to and to pass along that privilege and to facilitate opportunities for others to actualize their own potential. He seeks to use his position within the state legislature to create uh, and pass legislation and to, and to engage in constituent service that will fundamentally make just a little bit of a difference in one individual's life here, another individual's life there, he seeks to, quote, open doors of opportunity to those who didn't have the same opportunities that he had, whether it's by working in the private sector, uh, practicing discriminatory, uh, re reducing discriminatory practices uh, in employment situations, uh, whether it's uh, representing the uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization as a U.S. Naval Reserve officer. Will has his hands in many different pots uh, of public interest. He certainly has a diverse portfolio and, and seeks to make the world a little bit better uh, than it was when he came along. Uh, because frankly, it's exciting. It's uh, inspiring, as he says. And more than anything, it's the right thing to do. So, Will, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes. Leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.